and obviously I'm a trans woman living in Nigeria, which is like, like it's, it's a crazy navigation. When we are going in desert, we walk for good six hours. My leg was trapped. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Lay of the Land. It's the season finale of Lay of the Land and I couldn't be more excited to have you here. Can you believe it? We've embarked on this incredible journey together, exploring uncharted territories, capturing captivating experiences, and unearthing hidden nuggets of wisdom along the way. As I reflect on the past episodes, I'm filled with a sense of gratitude for the diverse tapestry of voices that graced our podcast. So today we're going to take a leisurely stroll down memory lane, revisiting some of the most unforgettable conversations from this season. And I've also got a few secret gems tucked away, parts of conversations that you haven't heard yet. This finale is all about celebrating the unique essence of Lay of the Land and the narratives that we've brought to the forefront of the Nigerian podcasting scene. So grab a cozy seat and a drink and join me as we relive the magic that unfolded throughout these remarkable conversations. Trust me, you won't want to miss a single moment. Don't come here and don't have work, I beg. <laughs> have your remote work settled and sorted. I don't think I ever read that, you know, when the baby's about to come, it feels like you're going to come. I told myself, look, this is who you want to be, right? You said you want this person, so you need to be ready for whatever comes you get, so... As we kick off our journey through the best moments of Lay of the Land, we're taking a detour to a story that didn't quite make it into the original episode. Remember our pilot? Well, we introduced you to this young Nigerian couple who set out on a scary adventure, crossing the Sahara Desert in search of a better life in Europe. But here's the twist. Their plans took a sharp turn and they found themselves stuck in Libya for a grueling two years, enduring unimaginable challenges. This never-before-heard recording captures their return to Nigeria with help from the International Organization for Migration and the obstacles that they faced once they got back. They mentioned that the IOM had promised to help all returnees with finances to restart their lives, but at the time of the recording, they were yet to receive the money. It's not been easy because, you know, everybody has their own situation Everybody has their own family background. Yeah. Everybody has the way they grow. But you see, we in Ajegule precisely, a lot of people is going through a lot over there. Yeah. But the grace I have is because I came from, I came with the connection of IOM and I thank God I know them because they have already promised us that they are going to assist us so we can be able to find something doing and meet up with whatever we want to meet up with. So I thank God for all that. I don't know why things is delaying for them to be able, because they have already paid some people who came back together to be sitting they have paid them. Like I said before, they have paid the lady. She's with her husband also. She just gave birth twins here in Nigeria. So they have paid them their own money. Things has not been really easy for us we just need help so we can have our own business something or doing, something you know, doing something because do we don't really have anything that we are doing so, to fix myself somewhere. so did jennifer and stanley ever receive help from the iom 
It's been about a year since I met them, so I gave Jennifer a call to find out. They have sent my baby money. They have sent my baby money. So I use it. You understand? I use it. So it remained me. So I don't know about my husband too because it's been a while. We have not communicated based on the way pain is. So I don't know. My husband has not told me anything, but they have sent me my baby money. That is the money they give us is two hundred and thirty-five thousand, and it was last year. We said last year. So we are using the money to manage since then. Now picture this. A system where the most basic healthcare needs of a marginalized community are swept under the rug, leaving them in a state of neglect and vulnerability. In one of our most cherished conversations this season, I had the privilege of sitting down with a brave young trans woman living right here in Nigeria. Her story shed light on the grim take two. Her story shed light on a grim reality. Healthcare for transgender individuals is practically non-existent. The lack of understanding, resources, and inclusive medical services is a glaring problem that demands our attention. Okay, so healthcare is non-existent for trans people in Nigeria. It is non-existent. I mean, they are like um, they are healthcare that have been set up for queer people, that are mostly for you know check your um. You know, go and check your um, your monthly um, sexual and STI, you know, HIV, all the all this and everything, and get prep or PEP or all these things. But they are not gender affirming care available at all for trans people at all. Like most, that's the reason why, like, um, if in a functioning country, um, healthcare for trans people are like free, are very much free, especially I know in the UK and some part of the US. Um, so. Here, we have to, like, basically buy and ship into the country, which is, like, a, it's crazy expensive. So, yeah, so many trans people that live here do not have access to healthcare at all, except maybe, like, there are individuals that, like, put, make it their job to, like, maybe help people, um, trans people, like, okay, bring mm-hmm. healthcare into the country and, like, distribute it to them. But, like, when it comes to, like, individual um, people doing it themselves, it's almost impossible. When I started as well, like, I had to, like, always, like, ship into the country. Or when I have, like, friends coming in, I send them money to help me get them and bring to the country. And then it, it's even very dangerous because then you're doing it yourself, you know? You're supposed to get, like, a doctor's opinion, supposed to have, have a therapist because it's just, like, it's a lot. According to the research, it's, like, cramping um the first second and third trimester and like menstrual circle like pms like all into like one like that is the amount that is how much they almost eat you when you're on it like so many people um have the transitioned like after they start because they could it could it took, took a toll on their body so many people have stopped so many people have committed suicide like is the reason why i'm actually i'm actually like even on post right because i have a lot going on yeah. and i just i just don't want that extra hormonal imbalance, you know. What we just heard from Fola is a stark reminder of a grave issue that cannot be ignored any longer, the absence of gender-affirming care in Nigeria. The words that she shared shed light on a painful reality for transgender individuals who are denied the basic right to access the medical support that they desperately need. 
Listening to this again, I'm going to challenge myself to seek out doctors and hospitals in the country, if I can, who are willing to offer gender-affirming care. Time for me to put my research hat on, and if I'm successful, we'll have a conversation on that in the next season. Still on healthcare, my mother-in-law is a doctor and she was a guest on Lay of the Land alongside my sister-in-law to discuss care for elderly people in Nigeria. I honestly had no idea that such difficulties are faced in this area of healthcare and the Palon elderly care plan is extremely important. I think the reason is not just in in, um, Nigeria, but I think globally private insurance is very cautious about insuring the elderly, and the elderly will be defined as 50 and above, to be honest, because the prevalence of chronic ailments increases with age. And so it's like, a, it's like an adverse selection. So insuring older people adversely selects, and you know insurance is premised on, on um, the healthy majority compensating for the unhealthy minority. With the elderly, most of them will be un- unhealthy. You know, they will have one ailment or the other that they're managing. And therefore, insurance companies are very worried about um, about insuring them, particularly because premiums are also very low in Nigeria. Because in real terms, you're paying 500,000 naira as a premium per annum, which sounds like a high premium in Nigeria. But in real terms, 500,000 naira is 500 pounds, about. Health insurance is like £3,000, £4,000 in the UK. If we were to pay those kind of sorts of premiums in Nigeria, then most people will not be able to afford the insurance. But is it fair, I mean, to say, okay, because elderly people um, often have one illness or another, in a way, it's, it's, it kind of sounds like to insurance companies, it's just too difficult for us to for us to deal with. That's the way it sort of comes across. And then my worry is that with our life expectancy in Nigeria being so low, 54 years, correct me if I'm wrong, that poses another issue, does it not? Okay, there are two, and I'll give you two. And the first is if we could correct the premiums. So like in, like I have life, I have health insurance, but it's costing the hospital maybe 3000 maybe $4,000. If I, if I had to pay that myself, I'm not sure I can afford it. That's the honest truth. And um, I don't think health, I mean, every business, even the health insurance companies are made, uh, established to make profits. So they cannot make profits if they insure the elderly. They are usually, I mean, I sit on the board of the health insurance company and I know that when they have pol- um, policies for the elderly, it's often loss making because they will use it. The insurance is meant to be, yeah, like I said, the healthy majority compensating for the unhealthy minority. So where you hope that maybe 10% or 5% to be unhealthy and the majority will be healthy. But with the elderly, that ratio is reversed. So it may not be fair, but many things are not fair in Nigeria. And um, yeah, so most elderly people when they are old have to pay out of pocket. If we can get insurance right where we can have a large pool, because we have we have a very young population in Nigeria. So if we could get public health insurance, right, where the large pool of healthy young Nigerians will compensate for with the unhealthy older Nigerians, then it will work. But less than 10% of the Nigerian population is uninsured. And just a little note about uh, 
lower life expectancy is skewed by a very high under five mortality. Mm. So it's exactly. an average of mortality across all ages. So if we backed off or backed out the under five mortality, suddenly our uh, uh, um, life, life expectancy will increase significantly. Most people will die before they turn five. And so it's that average that brings us down to 54. So if we were to back out the under five, then it might rise to like 70 or it so. It is about, I think it's about 73 or 74. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I never when knew that. Out the yeah. under five, yeah. So it's because of our high child mortality rates between yes. zero and five that our yeah. life expectancy in Nigeria is so low. Yeah. Yes. It's a troubling reality. Insurance companies turning their backs on our senior citizens simply because they often carry the weight of one illness or another. This blatant exclusion highlights the unfairness ingrained within healthcare systems globally. Also, you learn something new every day. Nigeria's life expectancy rates are so low because of our high under five mortality rates. This underscores the critical importance of prioritizing child healthcare and implementing comprehensive strategies to reduce infant and child mortality rates. Next up is my conversation with David Folarami, a survivor of a crack cocaine addiction. Another cut that you haven't heard before. Uh, I was at the bunks and then all sort of horrible things kept happening. But at some point I knew I had to leave. I wasn't feeling well. I was feeling sick. I had lost so much weight. Uh, so I go back home. And I tell my mom, when she sees me, because she, she can't reach me on phone. I told my phone. Usually that's the first thing anyone struggling with sort of addiction will sell. The phone is the easiest thing to, col- to give out as collateral and you'll never collect it back. You'll never get it back. So she couldn't reach me. So she was worried. She was worried sick. And then she saw me and she was like, what happened? I'd lost so much weight. So I, t- I, t- I told her, okay, um, I have a problem. I'm struggling with um, drugs. But then my mom is this naive Northern woman who doesn't know anything about stuff like this. And then because she's also a very religious person, she decided that, okay, she was just going to pray for me with the hope that that addiction will just fizzle away. So that's how she knew how to handle it. I mean, that's that's what she knew. So she did a lot of prayers and then, of course, it didn't work. So now I was in the house, in the family house. So I started picking things from the house. So I'll take her laptop today and take it to the bank, come back. Was she aware that you were doing that? At some point, no, but eventually, yes, because it started becoming obvious that things were getting missing in the yeah. house. So, and then my dad, my dad too just felt that um, I was using money for something and not just drugs. He didn't think I was hooked on drugs. He just he also felt cocaine wasn't available in Nigeria. I thought it was the thing of the West. It was only in movies. So when I said cocaine, he was like, when you're ready to tell me what's wrong with you, come back. You know what's interesting about that? Mm. That is an impression that a lot of people have. Yeah. But to the best of my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I understand that Nigeria gets some of the most high produce or high what what is what is it called high produce Potent. cocaine mm-hmm. that we mm-hmm. that there is in the world and apparently it's a triangle so a lot of the shipments coming in from South America heading to Europe Perfectly. come to Nigeria yeah, so first. Yeah, comes to West Africa, Ghana, Nigeria before going to Europe. Yeah. 
But before we go on and move on with the story from once you went back home and your parents were in denial, okay. I'd like to go back to the first time you tried crack cocaine. Mm. Many people, young people in particular, who are interested in experimenting think, oh, I'm just going to try it once. It's not going to be an issue. I don't have an addiction. Not knowing where that trying once can we'll lead them. to. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like for you? And why was it, why did you feel as though this was different and this was something that you needed? You see, crack cocaine, cocaine is, like I said before we started, it's a hell of a drug. But then crack cocaine, which is the rock solid form, is a highly dependent, psychologically dependent, very evasive, extremely addictive, drug. Now, unlike cocaine, which is, and I'm not trying to teach anybody how to use drugs, <laughs> <laughs> unlike cocaine, which is usually snorted through um, the nose, uh, crack is smoked through a pipe. And this mode of ingestion in itself, biologically speaking, is going to affect a person almost a hundred times faster than ingesting regular cocaine. Now, in the first, in also, that's why the dealers in the crack cocaine boom in the early 80s in, yeah. in, in the US introduced it because they knew they were going to make more profit of it. As David bravely shared his journey of addiction and recovery, he emphasized a crucial point. Crack cocaine is more addictive than regular cocaine, contributing to the devastating impact that it's had on individuals and communities. Astonishingly, studies have shown that the addictive properties of crack cocaine are estimated to be two to three times stronger than those of its powdered counterpart. These alarming statistics paint a stark picture of the immense challenges faced by those caught in the grips of this highly addictive substance. It's a reminder of the need for comprehensive support systems, effective rehabilitation programs, and targeted education to address the enduring consequences of crack cocaine addiction. I also brought up how drug addictions and abuse are handled in Nigeria. Here's what David had to say. I don't think we're handling it in the right way. First of all, there's so much stigma associated with uh, drug use, which is why people who suffer or struggle with drug use wouldn't want to come out or speak out because they feel the society is going to look at them as some sort of people. You know, just before the whole Me Too movement, we had a lot of ladies who are survivors of heinous attacks by criminals, but they couldn't come out for nothing they did. They were on their own and somebody attacked them and yet they couldn't come out. But then because a lot of information, a lot of, uh, awareness started coming out and instead of having ladies being able to say, okay, me too, this happened to me. So that's part of what we need to embrace in our society as regards drug abuse and addiction. People should understand, for instance, addiction is a disease. It's a brain disease, chronic relapsing brain disease that makes you want to do things that you don't would necessarily want to do. So if you find yourself in that position, like when I do trainings for parents or religious leaders, I tell them, if you're child has typhoid, for instance, you take him or her to hospital. Why is it different when he's struggling with addiction? That's a disease. Get him the requisite professional care yeah. to help him. You know, it's not a death sentence. It's not a moral feeling. It's not. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. So um, that's one way. Then two, we need to embrace um, harm reduction. 
What does harm reduction mean? I'll give you a very primary, simple example. Uh, someone who is riding a bike and always has to use that bike to get to work, that's the only means of transport he has. But he doesn't have money to buy a helmet. With or without his helmet, he'll go to work with his bike. But then if you can afford to buy a helmet for him and give to him, he'll wear it. Yeah. And he'll still go to work. And now you have reduced the harm that might come out from an accident. We need to also introduce that into drug use and addiction. How does this work? Now, certain people inject themselves in the bunk, right? Most of them share needles, right? I was also going to ask about that. Most of them share needles. There's nothing wrong in buying needles and taking to the bunk for distribution. And this, the, the government should be doing this, not even NGOs or individuals. The government should embrace this. Because if, for instance, you give somebody struggling with addiction a good needle, a new needle, and she doesn't have to share with somebody that has Less a likely to catch a disease. Thank you. Less likely to catch a disease. You know, condoms. Yeah. Because these ladies will have to sleep with people to be able to get money. And they will not buy condoms with their money because they need to buy cigarettes. They need to buy alcohol. They need to buy drugs. We have a lot of uh, NGOs that distribute these things, but the government should also buy into it. Yes, you're not, people trying to say you're encouraging them. No, you're not encouraging them. Whether you give them or you don't give them, they're still, gonna do they're it. still going to do it. So why don't you help them? You're actually helping them. And then uh, I think if we embrace this, try to reduce the stigma and embrace harm reduction, then it will give us a new way to look at it. And then we should stop using unorthodox means to treat people with addiction. Don't put people in a place and start flogging them. Yeah. Yes, we had to close up a place in Kaduna State. I you, saw a place they chained them by their legs. They chained them by their legs. It's wrong. This is all against the human rights of the person. Harm reduction is a critical approach in addressing drug abuse. Instead of punitive measures, it focuses on practical strategies to minimize the negative consequences of drug use. By providing support and resources such as needle exchange programs and safe injection sites, Harm reduction reduces the spread of diseases, prevents overdoses, and promotes access to healthcare and social services. It's a compassionate and effective way to address drug abuse, treating it as a public health issue and opening pathways to recovery. Next up is my conversation with Shola and Betty, who shared their pregnancy and childbirth stories. When it comes to pregnancy and childbirth, one thing becomes abundantly clear. It's a unique and deeply personal journey for every woman. In a captivating conversation, we unraveled the diverse narratives that unfold during this transformative time. Their stories painted a vivid picture of the experiences, emotions, and challenges that accompany the miracle of bringing life into the world. From the exhilaration of anticipation to the roller coaster of emotions, each woman's path is distinct and remarkable. Do you know what? Before my labor, actually, I need to say this. I was like the queen of going on YouTube and like watching different Same. people's stories. Same. And, you know, everybody had that like supernatural birth book. Did you ever get that? Well, I never bought it, but I saw it online and I was like, don't listen to that I had shit. The <laughs> supernatural birth book it's just like I don't know is it a Christian book it's like a Christian book mm -hmm. that like encourages women to you know allow your that they're gonna be to they're gonna be work. like exactly give birth like, like a Hebrew woman oh god 
Betsy, Betsy said it. Give breath like a Hebrew woman. It's going to be seamless, easy, straightforward. It's in God's hands. It's never like that, but yeah. Um, so I was the queen of that. So I, I thought that I had prepared. Yeah. But then, you know, my baby didn't come on time. And I think there's a certain limit where, like, the baby can stay in your stomach. At some point, they're going to have to evict them. So that's what getting induced means. So you check into the hospital and then they give you like some hormones to like kickstart the process. So they just help your body like naturally get to where it's supposed to be. Okay. So that's what getting induced is. How was your epidural? The first one, it was actually okay. It just, I swear, it's like God is just saving you because you feel nothing. So an injection goes into your spine. spine. Yeah. And you feel nothing. I think the most nervous part for me is the fact that, like, you're not allowed to move because of how, like, delicate and, like, serious your spine is. The little or the slightest, like, shift. So even that just even makes you nervous. But, you know, they they try to calm you down, relax you. The first experience was nice, but the second one, my God, I was in labor. And I was just like, give me the epidural, give me the epidural. And then as they were giving me, a contraction came. Oh my gosh. So I had to like literally just be still. So my first labor experience was okay. I had a natural birth. So um, I guess, you know, she walked into the room. She saw a Nigerian family. She felt at home. Yeah. And, you know, she was trying to like speak to my husband and I and tell us like what to expect. I shit you not, when the baby was about to come, I thought I was going to poop. <laughs> so I was telling her, I'm like, yo, I need to poop. I need to poop. But doesn't Do you know what this lady said? Yeah. I never expected that, though. I don't think I ever read that, you know, when the baby's about to come, it feels like you're going to poo. I never saw that anywhere. Have you Did ever, you? like, vomited? Really? And while you're vomiting, you feel like something may come out the other side as well. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're pushing a baby out, like, I even thought, like, a lot of nonsense can happen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, the first thing that the Angela lady said to me is that there is no dignity in childbirth, though. <laughs> She actually said that. I love it. She actually said, there's no dignity. Do what you need to do. So when I was like in labor and I was like, ma'am, I need to poop. I need to poop. She said, poo the poo now. Poo the poo. (laughs) I was like, am I in Luther? I'm in the NHS. Oh my God. Um, My labor was... I actually did give birth like a Hebrew woman. I hate to say it. I, I not to say it. It actually did happen. It actually did happen. So, so my, my pregnancy was terrible. My labor was great. Um, so I, I, like you, I was induced um, because my blood pressure started to go up. So at that point, there was fear of uh, preeclampsia. Is that what it's called? Yeah. So because of that, at 39 weeks, which is when you're technically full, um, they scheduled an induction for me. Now, my fear with an induction was always sometimes inductions don't take. And if they don't take, you end up having an emergency C-section anyway. And there are people that are in this induction process for days sometimes. So um, I think I went in and they do what's called a cervical ripening first, which is when they give you like um, drugs to kind of like um, kind of shorten your cervix a bit. And kind of, so I think it's, it's called, called right? a sweep in, in London. Oh, no. A sweep is... Oh, no. That is, that is different? Listen... A cervical oh, sweep? Wait, what, what the hell is a sweep? Oh, a sweep is like when they put like two fingers Listen. and they go in there and they just like try to so like clear the pathway. So they try to measure they, they how... They think they 
you could call it essentially that. they tried to measure they tried to measure um the length of your cervix because your cervix gets shorter as the baby drops right because the baby drops and it gets shorter and shorter so a cervical sweep is when they can they put their fingers in to kind of try to measure how far you are and this is not dilating this is just to see how where you cer- listen that was the most painful experience out of my entire pregnancy actually the guy but the guy actually pulled out my mucus plug by accident when he did the cervical sweep yes he Mm. did it was was terrible it was so painful I started bleeding after Um, so that made me tell them I do not want a resident I do not want an intern (laughs) if you are not a certified OBGYN do not come near me like I'm not I I, I don't care what you need to learn don't learn it with me just just move on so (laughs) so um, it did a cervical ripening first uh, which kind of helps soften the cervix and kind of helps everything kind of move along and then they started doing so they did that for the first 12 hours then they did what they call a Foley catheter a Foley catheter is a balloon that they put into your cervix to help dilate. They fill up with water and it help, helps your dilation process happen. So when they were done with that, I think a full 24 hours had passed at that point. And I was only dilated maybe like four centimeters. So I felt pressure, a little bit of pain, but not an incredible amount of pain. But they're like, oh, do you want to take the epidural now? And I'm like, no. Disclaimer, I was always a drug person. Give me all the drugs you have. Yeah. I don't want to, I, I don't care. I don't need to feel this naturally. Give me everything, everything you have in the pharmacy. Just let me have it. So at that point, I was like, okay, I think this is actually all right. So they've given me, so they asked me if I wanted epidural, if I wanted, there's a shot that they gave me instead for pain. And I was like, let me just have the shot. So they kept on giving me the injection and the injection worked well, except I reacted to it and I oh wanted to, and it made me itch, right? And this, this itch was coming from like the, inside so you couldn't even like scratch yourself the only good thing about it was that um it puts you to sleep so i fell asleep for a few and then i think at about after 24 hours or so at about midnight the next day my doctor says to me okay we're going to take the catheter out we can't keep you on the meds for more than 24 hours they have to take a break and she says um we'll break your water so Right before she did it, she asked me, do I want the epidural? And I said, no, I'm, I'm still good. How does breaking your water when they do it for you happen? So they literally stick a, it's like a, like a long, it's like a stick or something. I, I don't know. What to, and they literally just poke it. They put, they put it in you and they poke it. And all the water just comes, just comes out, literally. It's like draining a bag, essentially. I've never experienced that. Yeah, it's like draining a bag. That, that was what, that was what it was like. So, um. She says, do you want, and I was like, no, I'll just take another shot instead because the first shot worked. So cool. Yeah. Listen, <laughs> after she, and I had been having contractions, but they weren't intense or anything. After she broke my water, my contractions went from zero to a thousand almost immediately. And you know when they say, Labor feels like every single bone in your body breaking. Mm-hmm. It's actually what it feels like. Every single bone. I've, I've never broken a bone, but I assume that's, that's what it, it was. It just feels like you're just being just mashed up. <laughs> that's exactly what it feels like. It was so painful. Are the contractions the most painful part? Yes. Yeah. 
So what kind of pain is it? Is it like a griping pain that yes. pulls into you? Yes. So basically like period pains times one million. Yes. Hmm. It was, it because it felt like my stomach was being pulled from the inside out. Because, I guess that's what makes it hard to push. Sorry. Yes. Right. Yeah, right. Because I mean, what it is, is if you think of your muscle, right? The uterus is a muscle. It's literally in and out, in and out. That's what's happening. That's what's helping push this baby down. I just feel like I've really stopped. <laughs> <laughs> that, that works too. That works too. Funnily enough, I think we recorded this episode about a week before I found out that I was pregnant. And all I can remember thinking while listening to Shola and Betty was, God, how do women do this? Now I'm at the start of my third trimester, inching closer and closer to Labor Day, and it's weird. You know, a lot of the fears that I had before pregnancy have left me. That being said, they'll probably come back when it's time for me to give birth. (laughs) But for now, I'm enjoying this fear-free state of mind for as long as it lasts. My pregnancy journey so far has been pretty okay, I must say. Um... I was one of the lucky few not to experience morning sickness in the first trimester, and the only pregnancy symptom that I had was fatigue. Although I also read that morning sickness is a sign of a healthy pregnancy, so I'm not sure if I should be scared. (laughs) Um, But as for the fatigue, I mean, for me it was a good thing because I just slept more and I love my sleep. One thing that's been hard, though, is the change of lifestyle. Sometimes all I want is a good drink, and while, you know, the odd glass of wine is okay, I do miss the days of getting turned, I won't lie. I miss eating sushi once a week as well. That being said, though, the rules on pregnancy really differ depending on where you are in the world, and I've learned that all I can do and all any pregnant woman can do is trust your gut. But time is flying by and soon I'll have my body back to myself, just with a little one to look after and take over my life in a different way. The joys of adulting, eh? (laughs) Um, If you do want to keep up with my pregnancy journey, follow me on TikTok at Layla Johnson Salami. I will be putting out a lot of content in my final 12 weeks. Last but not least is my conversation with Maz, a holistic nutritionist. Now, I really enjoyed this conversation because I'm a huge believer in preventing and curing illnesses through diet. Did you know, for example, that cancer cells feed on glucose and glutamine? Now, nearly everyone has cancer cells in their body, and while I'm a huge fan of juices, I've recently learned that juicing releases the sugars and fruits far more than when you eat the fruit itself. The thing about juicing and the juicing industry in Nigeria is huge. I I actually want to carry out research to find out what has happened over the past few years. But juicing has been seen as a replacement for a bad diet, right? So some people will eat really poorly and then they'll have some orange, pineapple, strawberry and, and blueberry juice or smoothie and think that that's outdoing their bad diet, right? The issue with all of this is that this is a lot of sugar one and it is going to wreak havoc on insulin in the body, right? So all this yo-yoing of, oh my God, I have a lot of energy and then I crash will happen if you have juices that don't have the adequate amount of vegetables to fruit ratio in it. Actually, more vegetables to fruit. So green juices are better. Yes, green juices will always be better. I, I tend to always avoid 
any juices that just have fruits in it. So what about this? I'm drinking one with carrot, pineapple, orange, and mint leaves. Not awful. Could be better. <laughs> um, I would add one more vegetable to that. I would maybe add some spinach, right? Yeah. Then you have something a bit more hearty because the amount of sugar that's being compressed out of these juices, you're losing the fiber and all you're getting is really the sugar, right? So you should want something that will balance it a bit more. So if you're on a juice diet, be careful. Juices are still, you know, full of vitamins, but everything in moderation. And there you have it, season one of Lay of the Land. As I reflect on this extraordinary journey that we've embarked upon together, my heart is filled with gratitude. Thank you, each and every one of you, for joining me week after week, lending your ears to the captivating conversations that we've shared. From the depths of unimaginable struggles to the heights of inspiring triumphs, we ventured into uncharted territories, documenting experiences, and sharing knowledge that often remain untold. These conversations have touched my soul, broadened my perspective, and reaffirmed the power of storytelling to bridge divides and create empathy. Your unwavering support and engagement have fueled this podcast, propelling us forward in our quest to amplify voices and spark meaningful change. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you for being part of this incredible season. Stay tuned for season two, where we'll continue to unearth captivating stories, explore new horizons, and delve even deeper into the tapestry of human experiences. Until then, take care and keep seeking the extraordinary in the ordinary.